Welcome to Thinking Philosophy. I'm Deborah Stone, coming to you from Australian Catholic University, where we believe in asking the big questions. One of the best-known moral theories is utilitarianism, the doctrine that our only job as moral agents is to maximise the overall well-being of everyone who is affected by our actions. Utilitarianism has been enormously influential in academic philosophy, in public policy and economics, and in many other contexts. It's most strongly associated with 19th century British philosophers such as Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, and Henry Sidgwick. But although many people find utilitarianism attractive in theory, when it comes to difficult cases, there are some real stumbling points. With us, to discuss difficulties for classical utilitarianism and his ideas about the alternatives is Dr. David Kaloran, a moral philosopher at the Dianoia Institute of Philosophy at Australian Catholic University. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks, Deborah. I'm very pleased to be here. Utilitarians say that we ought to try to maximize overall well-being. This means we ought to try to increase the happiness and prevent the suffering of ourselves and others to the highest degree we possibly can. That sounds like a fair guide to ethical behaviour. After all, happiness is clearly good and suffering is clearly bad. But many philosophers believe that the utilitarian approach can badly mislead us. Why? Uh, you know, I guess the first thing to say is that um, utilitarianism as applied in certain cases um, does give us uh, plausible answers. So, for example, think about um, public policy. If it turns out that setting a tax rate at a certain level will maximally promote aggregate well-being in your society, uh, that seems like a pretty good reason to set the tax rate at that level. Um, and that's just what utilitarianism says to do. Um, but there are many other cases where the utilitarian approach seems to have extremely unattractive implications. So here's a famous case. Suppose you're a doctor and you have one healthy patient and five sick uh, patients. Um, the sick patients can be saved if they receive organ transplants. Uh, say one needs a kidney, one needs a lung, one needs a heart, etc. Um, you can save the five if you kill the one uh, healthy patient. Um, and suppose the healthy patient uh, doesn't want to die. Um, neither do the sick uh, the five sick patients, though. Um, so what should you do? Um, well, most people will say that you cannot justifiably kill the one to save the five, uh, even if doing so is the best way to maximally promote aggregate well-being among the six individuals whose lives are at stake. Um, utilitarianism is inconsistent with that intuitive judgment. Uh, so this case uh, looks like a case where utilitarianism gives us the wrong result. One of the most famous utilitarian philosophers in the world is Peter Singer, who's also well known for his work on animal rights. What does the utilitarian approach do for animal ethics? Does it have the same sort of problems as the utilitarian approach to the transplant case you've just discussed? Uh, yeah, this gets at a fascinating issue. Um, it turns out that people are more likely to accept utilitarian views about cases of interest in animal ethics uh, than other sorts of cases. Uh, for example, many people think it's okay to kill one pig to save five pigs in a range of different scenarios, uh, but people very often tend to think it's not okay to kill one human being to save five human beings. Um, 
the situation here is a little bit complicated. Um, it's not that people never take a utilitarian approach in their dealings with human beings. Uh, in fact, most people agree that it is sometimes acceptable to kill one human being uh, to save many. Um, here's a famous trolley case. Uh, a runaway trolley is speeding toward five people. Uh, the only way uh, you can save the five is to redirect the trolley to a sidetrack where it will kill one person. Uh, most people think it's okay to redirect the trolley, killing the one to save the five. Um, so it's not that people never want to kill one to save five when it comes to human beings. Um, but in many other cases, uh, such as the transplant case that we discussed earlier, people tend to think that it's wrong to kill the one to save the many. Uh, people tend to look at the transplant case from what is called a deontological perspective, which is just to say that they look at it from a non-utilitarian perspective. Um, people are largely but not completely deontological when it comes to human beings, um, but people are more utilitarian when it comes to animals. Um, and we can illustrate this point with uh, a pair of cases. Uh, in the first case, imagine uh, you're the director of an animal sanctuary. Uh, one of the pigs is showing signs of a highly infectious and deadly disease. If this pig is not killed, there's a real risk that the other pigs at the sanctuary will be infected and die. Question, is it acceptable to kill that pig? Uh, many people will say yes. Uh, many people... Uh, say that it's morally obligatory to kill the pig. Uh, you're being irresponsible if you don't do that because you're putting all the other pigs' lives at risk. Uh, and that's a utilitarian way of thinking. Um, but now, uh, switch the case. Uh, suppose that you're a director of an orphanage that is home to human children. Uh, one of the children is showing signs of a highly infectious and deadly disease. Even if the only way to prevent the spread of infection is to kill that child, and even if this is the best way to promote uh, the well-being of all the children at the orphanage, uh, it still seems to many people that it is not acceptable to kill the child. Uh, here people may say, for example, that the child has the right to life, and you would violate the child's right to life if you were to kill her, even if the consequences of not killing her are worse than the consequences of doing so. And that's a deontological way of thinking. Um, so these sorts of cases illustrate that people are more utilitarian about animals than they are about human beings. And this in turn suggests that our intuitions may be captured by what is sometimes called a hybrid theory, according to which a utilitarian approach to animals is correct, or approximately correct, but a deontological approach to other sorts of cases is correct. I can see why the utilitarian idea uh, about animals would appeal more to someone like me, who's a meat eater. But what about people who are vegan, who often regard humans and animals as moral equals? Do they take a more utilitarian approach to humans as well? Uh, yeah, that's another uh, hugely fascinating uh, issue. Um, I'm not aware of any rigorous psychological research that bears on this question. Um, however, I can share some informal evidence um, I recently had an opportunity to give a talk at an animal activist event in Melbourne. Um, and at this event, um, I split the audience into groups and gave them different cases. Um, the cases were similar, except that some of them uh, involved killing a chicken to save many other chickens, whereas others involved killing a human child uh, to save many other children. 
Um, and each group was given only one case to consider, so they didn't know that the other groups were considering different cases. Um, only 35% of those who were given the child cases said that it's acceptable to kill one child to save many children. But 85% of those who were given the chicken cases said that it's acceptable to kill one chicken to save many chickens. Uh, so it looks like even activists are inclined to see animals differently and from a more utilitarian perspective than they see human beings. Of course, this doesn't mean that activists are no different from the general population. Activists oppose many practices that are seen as acceptable by many people. Um, but this informal experiment still suggests that ordinary people and activists uh, at least sort of share a tendency to see animals from a more utilitarian perspective. So we know that certainly when it comes to humans, our views are not always utilitarian. Are we always utilitarian about animals? Uh, yeah, that's a, another great question. Um, so it seems that that's not the case. Um, and this ex seems especially clear when we think about animals with whom uh, we have relationships. Uh, take dogs, for example. If you have a pet dog, uh, you are not likely to be willing to kill your dog uh, to save five other dogs. Uh, and that's probably not uh, a merely personal preference. It seems to be a kind of moral judgment. Um, and we can see this by thinking about a case where uh, your friend kills her dog to save five other dogs. Um, I think a lot of people would say that uh, that person has done something that is uh, not just sort of distasteful, but even immoral. Uh, and that suggests a deontological, or, uh, deontological attitude uh, toward some animals, uh, namely toward the animals that we see as pets. Hmm. Utilitarianism is a consequentialist system. The only thing that matters is the outcome of our actions as compared to the alternatives. In both the chicken sanctuary and the orphanage case, we can see that the outcome is the same in terms of the number of deaths. Nevertheless, we're in inclined to see those cases differently. Does the dog case give us a clue as to why? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, so we have relationships with our pets, um, and we seem to see them in a deontological way. Uh, so maybe that's not a coincidence. Maybe in general, relationships sort of put us into a deontological mode. Um, according to this idea, when uh, relationships between an agent and the individuals affected by the agent's actions are both present and salient, uh, we think of the case in a deontological way. But when such relationships are either not present or not salient, uh, we think of the cases in a utilitarian way. Uh, this hypothesis, uh, which I should emphasize is only a hypothesis, might explain why we have a tendency uh, to think of animals from a utilitarian perspective. Perhaps our relationships with animals are different from them or are less salient than our relationships with one another. And perhaps this is why we more often adopt a utilitarian perspective when we think about animals. Um, that's a psychological hypothesis. Um, that is, it's a hypothesis about how people in fact think. Um, this psychological hypothesis is neutral on whether that's the right way to think. Um, the corresponding philosophical hypothesis that would be that we are somehow correct in thinking this way. Um, according to that philosophical hypothesis, relationships are morally important and have the power to affect the content of our obligations. Relationships can, for example, make an action that would otherwise be acceptable into an action that is immoral. 
Uh, so killing one dog to save many dogs could be totally fine, according to this view, uh, in the absence of a relationship with that one dog. But if that dog is a pet or a companion or something like that, you have some kind of relationship with the dog, uh, then it could be wrong, even if the consequences of killing that individual are unaffected by the relationship. So even if the consequences are the same, when you add a relationship, you can make the action that otherwise would be acceptable into something that's wrong. The philosophical theory about relationships that I've just described is controversial among philosophers and perhaps among ordinary people as well. Um, but it's extremely well represented among philosophers. Um, W.D. Ross is an example of an extremely important uh, and influential philosopher of the 20th century who held that relationships can matter uh, in these sorts of ways. And there are many philosophers today who are defending this kind of view here in Australia. Uh, Simon Keller is an example of somebody who has developed a kind of position like this. A, a name for this uh, theory um, is relationalism. As a parent, relationalism seems instinctively appealing. It seems to explain why I can justifiably invest so much more effort in my own child than I do in someone else's. Would relationalists hold that I'm behaving ethically when I do that? Uh, yeah, there's room for disagreement uh, within the relationalist camp on this issue. Uh, but yeah, I think that one of the most important advantages of the relationalist approach is that it can explain why it is right for parents to do far more for their children uh, than for others. Um, a lot of discussion in philosophy about the moral significance of relationships has focused on what is called partiality, where you give greater weight to the interests of individuals with whom you have relationships than to the interests of strangers. Uh, many relationalists hold that our relationships can justify or even require that we show partiality toward our children, our spouses, other loved ones, our colleagues, our neighbors, our fellow citizens, and others with whom we have relationships. Um, it also bears noting that relationships can conceivably ground other sorts of obligations and permissions beyond partiality. Uh, for example, I think that relationships can ground attainment obligations, obligations to ensure that someone attains a level of well-being that is good enough. So the question then becomes how far that partiality extends. Can I spend money sending my child to a private school that could save a hundred children from dying of starvation in a distant land? Uh, yeah, another great question. And it's another area where relationalists can uh, disagree with one another. Um, most of us will agree that there are some cases where you have to help strangers rather than your own children. Uh, to take an extreme example, um, uh, if you can prevent a million distant children from starving to death or prevent your own child from experiencing a very brief headache, and you can't do both of those things, um, it seems that you have to save the starving children rather than prevent the headache. Um, but the case you described is considerably harder, both because the number of children you can save is lower and because the stakes for your child's future in receiving an education are higher. Um, and these matters are very difficult. Um, and it might be that there is just no general formula that we can use to figure out the precise degree of partiality justified by our relationships. Um, one thing that seems worth emphasizing here is that in the case you've given, uh, the agent may well have a morally significant relationship with those starving children. Uh, for example, the agent is a potential benefactor to those children. Um, the relationship of benefactor to 
potential beneficiary is obviously different from the parent-child relationship, and it seems extremely plausible to me and to many others in the relationalist tradition to say that the relationship of potential benefactor is not as morally weighty as the parent-child relationship, but it's still reasonable to think of it as a genuine relationship that could affect our obligations. That opens up some interesting possibilities. We don't normally think of ourselves as having relationships with kids on the other side of the world who we don't know. But you're now suggesting I might have a relationship even though I'm not aware of that relationship. Is it possible to have a relationship with someone I don't know? Um, yeah, I think so. And I think this is actually an extremely important and too often underappreciated feature of our moral lives. Um, the idea that we can have morally significant relationships with others without even knowing it uh, can be made plausible if we continue thinking about parents. Um, imagine a man who has a, a brief fling with a woman and then moves to another country and is never seen again. Unbeknownst to him, uh, the woman is pregnant and nine months later a child is born. Um, it seems very plausible to say that the man has at least one important relationship with that child, he is that child's father, uh, even though he has no idea that he has a re that relationship. Um, uh, we might have all sorts of other relationships with others that we don't know about. Uh, for example, our interconnected economy creates all sorts of complex relationships with people in different places. A consumer in Melbourne uh, could have relationships with factory workers in China or farmers in Mexico, or truck drivers in Romania. Uh, these relationships could be morally important, even if the consumer doesn't even know that those individuals exist. This also connects with animal ethics. Consumers are indirectly responsible for the existence of farmed animals, because farmed animals are bred into existence so that their bodies and secretions can be served up to customers. That kind of re uh, responsibility for another's existence is arguably very important from a moral point of view. Consumers' re uh, relationships with farmed animals may be quite a lot more intimate and more significant than consumers tend to realize. From a relationalist point of view, the relationships between consumers and animals could have very important implications for questions about the moral acceptability of consumption of animal products. More broadly, as mentioned earlier, our relationships with animals are often less salient to us than our relationships with our fellow human beings. And so we run a high risk of failing to notice our relationships with them. Uh, and that means that if we are relationalists, then we need to be extra attentive to the possibility that we are overlooking relationship originating moral obligations to animals, whether those animals are on farms or in the wild or living among us in cities. A core idea of the relationalist approach, as you pursue it in your work, is to try to use relationships to make sense of common sense down to logical judgments. How far can this approach go? For example, deontologists commonly hold that there is a morally important difference between doing and allowing. Allowing a child to die of starvation in a distant land may be bad, but it's nowhere near as bad as killing that child oneself. Can relationalism make sense of this idea? I think so. Uh, and this is a key aspiration of both my solo work and my work with my co-author, uh, Rob Streifer. Um, the, core, uh, the core idea is that in typical cases of doing, 
there is a relationship present that is missing in analogous cases of allowing. Um, on the view that I want to now suggest for your listeners to consider, if I were to fly across the ocean, seek out a starving child and kill her myself, I would thereby, in that very act of killing, create a morally significant relationship with her. And it would be in virtue of that relationship that the act of killing is so morally abhorrent. Um, the more general thought here is that violence itself is a relationship. And its status as a relationship helps to explain why it is so awful. By contrast, when someone merely allows a child in a distant land to die, the relationship of violence is absent. To be sure, there may be other relationships involved when one allows a death to occur, but these other relationships may be morally different, and this could explain why allowing is morally different from doing in a host of different scenarios. One advantage of this sort of approach is that it may also help to explain what's going on in cases where doing doesn't seem to be any worse than allowing. Um, there's a famous case due to philosopher James Rachel's um, uh, pair of cases um, that can illustrate uh, this kind of uh, point. Um, so imagine in one case, uh, you want to get an inheritance from your nephew. And so to get the inheritance, uh, you force your nephew uh, to drown in a bathtub. Um, that seems really bad. So in a, imagine another case, you're about to force the nephew to drown, uh, but then you notice that the nephew is already drowning. The nephew has slipped in the bathtub or something. So you just think, well, that's convenient, and you simply watch as the nephew drowns. Um, these cases seem to be morally similar. A lot of people want to say that uh, in both cases, you're doing something that is really extremely morally wrong. Um, and yet one of these cases is a case of doing and the other is a case of allowing. So how can you explain that? Well, a relationalist can say that these cases are morally similar just because the relationship between the agent and the victim is similar in each case. Um, that's a very rough sketch of how a relationalist approach might be able to ground a plausible deontological view about the difference between doing and allowing. The broader aspiration is to pull this sort of trick with other sorts of deontological ideas, for example, uh, to develop a relationalist uh, approach to moral rights. Well, if ethical decision-making is as complex as human relationships, philosophers won't be short of work anytime soon. Dr. David Kaloran, thank you so much for joining us on Thinking Philosophy, a podcast of the Australian Catholic University. Thanks, too, to Trey Karunarathna, one of our talented media production students here at ACU, for his work on the show. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to share it and rate it on your podcast provider so other people can enjoy it, too. I'm Deborah Stone, and you've been listening to Thinking Philosophy. <laughs>